this book is just like one of the best narrative nonfiction style books. Like I, this is a totally different topic, but it reminded me of what's the like banana book, the fish that ate the whale or something. Fish that ate the yeah. whale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the like it wasn't written in that like exciting type of style in the same way, but it's just this genre of book. I we need to do more of them because they're so fun to read. Well, did you? Uh, this isn't necessarily a good person to be taking life advice from, but <laughs> there was a good thread in the Slate Star Codex r- subreddit yesterday. I should I should try to find it and send it to you guys. Was talking about so SBF, the founder of FTX, had this quote where he was like, I don't read many books because almost every book could be like a blog post or an article. And then he kind of like goes on to say that if you wrote a book, you kind of like screwed up in some way because <laughs> you should have found a more concise way to convey that information than mm-hmm. in 300 pages. And we, we've talked about this before, right? There are definitely books that fit that criteria. But then the, the discussion in the subreddit was this obviously isn't true for all books. So what are books that are actually worth reading as books? And one of them, and and especially within the subset of nonfiction, right? Because obviously like, you know, Lord of the Rings doesn't work as a blog post. Uh, but (laughs) maybe it does. They just take the Eagles. I don't know. Uh, but (laughs) it was like, so what, what nonfiction genres work well as like full length? And you're right. These kind of narrative driven ones definitely work so much better than the idea books that get stretched to 300 pages. And I don't even think documentaries do this justice. Like this book could have been a documentary. You know, if it was probably done today, it would be like a series of Instagram lives or like TikToks or something. Like look at me driving through China. But I don't think it would have conveyed the same sense of adventure that this did. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was just like, I I think to your point, Nat, or I guess to the subreddit's point, there are definitely genre like types of books. And I think this is one of those where a book is kind of the only format that I think would have done it justice. You also, you need to see it in real time. Like if this was written entirely after the fact and it's like, Hey, this guy started this business and then this happened. And then this happened very linearly. You wouldn't feel the like, cultural stressors and like cultural like all all the little things that become apparent in the interactions when you do it in real time like oh he's going to go meet with like the cadre folks and the local party secretary did this and you're there like twist by twist the thing it reminded me of is i i forget which one it is but dan carlin when he does hardcore history for the Cuban Missile Crisis. He doesn't do it as like a pure retrospective. He actually does it as like a real-time like play-by-play, like, okay, and then this happened, and here's what they were thinking Mm. at that moment, as if the next pages have not yet taken place. And over there, you're like, you get get these... Yeah, it's it's really cool because then you're in their shoes at that moment as opposed to knowing how the crisis ends and then everything follows this like, almost like a narrative fallacy. This might actually be the opposite where it's like, by presenting it in real time, it's like a fallacy that you're breaking the narrative fallacy. Uh, and it's still <laughs> anyway, but it feels more yeah. entertaining to read. Turtles all the way down. Space <laughs> <laughs> and the title of the book, by the way, is Country Driving, A Journey Through China from Farm to Factory. And I didn't realize this. This is the third book in a series, yeah. right? Yeah, I didn't realize wow. it either. Yeah, now I want to read the Have other you, two. I know. Yeah, now now I want to maybe read the first two. Yeah. The the thing was, I don't think you needed to read those before reading this. Like it wasn't 
you know, Lord of the Rings would be hard to start Return of the King, you know, yeah, yeah. the other two. Yeah, trilogy is perhaps the wrong word to use, but it the 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 dust jacket describes it as a trilogy. Yeah. The final book in his award-winning trilogy on the human side of the economic revolution in China. Oh wow, yeah. So, yeah. Rivertown, Oracle and Bones. Oracle Bones. Yeah. That uh subtitle is really accurate, I think, because I don't know, there's like there's so many things I want to talk about in this, but one of those things, for example, is just I think we have this thought of like, oh, this is all these things are made in China, and we like forget that these are there's people on the other side of that making those things, and the ingenuity that goes into making those things, and like just like the sheer hustle with a lot of the the uh, the people that were involved is just I, I think we just never get exposed to that. It's just like oh, it's made yeah. in China. Okay, that's it, like as if it's like a China is like a machine that just spits out stuff. that was one of the interesting things there was a quote towards the end of the book where it says uh every country has a predisposition towards wasting its most abundant resource and in china that is human capital there's so many people yeah i actually feel that that's true about india too by the way like i don't know if uh i've not spent nearly as much time in china but in india you'll see like there'll be a small thing and there's like seven people standing around and one person actually doing work but there's like eight people on a job that probably in the U.S. would be a one or two person job, um, but that's just because mm. there's such an abundance of people. Like labor is effectively fr- like close to free. Well, that was like we we haven't done energy and civilization, right? No, we I have. Just, and we I know we, we have Vaclav Smil. Yeah, yeah, we did okay. it. We did it. <laughs> I can't remember if we both read it independently and didn't do it. Okay, no, we no, no, we it. did it years ago. Uh, but yeah, we did it. Okay, yeah, yeah, that that was that was a theme in there too, right? If like if human labor is the cheapest form of energy available, then it'll get used, and so like the more humans you have available for stuff, like the more people just default to that. Right, it's just easier. I mean, people are already there. You yeah. don't need any kind of complex supply chain. You know, it's just feed them, house them. You know, things that everyone is already doing, even the people who are only- incredible AI models. Yeah. The thing I didn't yeah. realize, though, on that AI note is I think when you see the Made in China stamp, you don't like realize the sheer amount of ambition and willpower it takes. And that was like the biggest thing. The country driving is such a relaxed title, but I left the book being like, everyone is fucking hustling. Like <laughs> the level of ambition is so unbelievably high, even for like the factory jobs. Yeah. The uh, like the 15 year old who is pretending to be a 17 year old. Uh, who was pretending to have past experience, like none of which were true in order to like land the gig and then bring the whole family along for the ride. Like stories like that kind of blew my mind. I thought there were two two themes related to that. So one was the ambition to get ahead. But I also think in some ways it was the opposite too, where it's it's almost like the traditional side was falling apart to the point where it was unsustainable. And it's almost like it's one of those things you're like stuck in quicksand and you have to get out. And that's what's driving a lot of the ambition and hustle. It wasn't necessarily like ambition and hustle for the sake of for the sake of itself. It was like this town we live in is not going to exist in two generations or in one generation. Mm-hmm. There was some. It was like both. Amb- yeah. Like it was eye opening how ambitious people were, but I couldn't tell if it was purely from an ambition standpoint or survival standpoint. Mm. Yeah, there's like some economic mix in there, like this. China started investing in the cities. Everyone wants to go to the city to send money back. And yeah, Adil, you're much yeah. more 
well versed on China than than I am. Like, do you know how this this book is from what the mid two thousands? I think two thousand seven, if I remember correctly, like two thousand. Oh no, was it after the economic crisis? Because they mentioned the the great financial crash. They mm, mentioned how that exactly. messed up a lot of the factory jobs, but then it didn't mess up like the consumer because mortgages weren't really a thing. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, it's twenty eleven. Yeah, I wonder how it's held up. Just relative to, I mean, it's been twelve years, I guess, since then. Yeah, some some stuff that did stand out to me. I mean, I don't know that much about China, but some things that did stand out to me is just because the level of the rate of progress is so high. Some of his descriptions of things like infrastructure or like party corruption pieces, like I'm sure, still exist to some degree, but re- probably like a percentage of what's described in the book. Also, because a lot of the book. Like especially when he comes to his infrastructure stories, is from two thousand and three. So even though it's yeah, published I was gonna say, in, isn't it from yeah. like early early two thousands? Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he borrowed that from think- his previous books because we haven't read the other two, so we didn't know if they were, you know, things that oh, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Taleb. Like each book is one third recycled of the yeah. book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another thing that stood out to me on a non-economic note was the um all the stuff around government like you know we think at least from our perspective we're like oh china has a super strong central government which they do uh but not in the way that i think and again maybe this is one of the things that didn't hold up as well because i think there's a lot more they can do today with the surveillance state than they probably could do in 2003 but the things that they say is like well i have a quote here where uh, he says, in China, much of life involves skirting regulations. And one of the basic truths is that forgiveness is c- comes easier than permission. And mm. I just would not have expected that to be the case in China. Um, and and he gives that many, many times in the book where it's just like, you know, a lot of rules are broken. A lot of the rules are like suggestions, not really rules. It's like, if they like you, they won't enforce it. If they don't like you, they'll enforce it. Like very much a... Um, Corrupt isn't really the right word. It's it's just like it's like strong regulation, like loosely held or something like that, loosely enforced. <laughs> my my synthesis of it was a little different. It was basically that the CCP is very very good at running like broad swaths of things at like group level, and as soon as you zoom in down like the individual, like a single person with a single violation of a thing or like a single regulation at a single factory, so on, then like all fidelity is lost. And Mm -hmm. I think that's just true everywhere. Yeah. I think, I think part of it is just that we have this idea of CCP as omniscient. So it feels like it's some pattern break, but actually it's just like any federal government anywhere can't zoom in all the way effectively. And local government is always somewhat corrupt. Yeah. And I think we talked about this on the last episode, but in some ways Americans police themselves like a lot more than it seems like when we were talking about traffic lights and how those miraculously work in America, like somebody didn't stop at a red light in the middle of nowhere, you would just be like, wow, what an asshole, even though there's nobody else coming. (laughs) That was, I'm curious what you guys thought about this where there were certain things where I was like, I can't tell if culturally it's like super different or if all people are the same and they're just doing the same things in different contexts. So I'll give like a tangible example to illustrate the question. You just mentioned the traffic lights, like self-policing. There's self-policing in China 
as told in this story as well, but it's just like totally different things. So you'll like run the traffic light because like who cares? But then you're very, very uh, like meticulous around, you know, doing like, I don't know what the English translation was, but like the guanxi, like the favors or like exchange uh, with other folks to, in order to network. So you'll like give them a cigarette or you'll take them a drink or you take them out to dinner. And the idea being that like these accumulate over time and you can kind of like kind of cash them in later, which is not really an American thing because over here would be called like counting favors, but over there seem like totally okay. Self-policing. So there were a few examples like this where I was like, are all people the same just applied to different things or is it really that different? I think it's all people are the, the same, but then like the circumstances or environments are different and the cultures are different. Um, but I think, yeah, I think like large, I mean, there's still human, everyone's still kind of responding to just the incentives and the structure of their local environment. Like you probably put an American in that environment, you know, and they live there long enough, they're going to have to become like that too. <laughs> I don't think they'd survive too long being American culturally. Like a word that came to mind to me a bit was like, Everyone was very calculating in the story. But then people here are also calculating, yeah. just like about about different things. Yep. You know, like yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, even more broadly, what makes some things rude or impolite in one culture, but not in another culture? Right. Like he he talks about, and this is sort of like a common experience. I think for anyone who travels to like a lot of Asia, but just like walking through crowds is so different because the constant like bumping into each other and like you do that in some parts of the U S you might get punched. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's almost like an act of aggression. Yeah. Right. But then it's, it's completely normal. Uh, and, and he talks about, okay, you know, that might've evolved from just how densely populated the cities are, but you know, for, just from a few of these examples, like I wonder there, there must just be different, like, I don't know if they're religious or social or situational roots for how some things become totally fine in one place and rude or aggressive or whatnot in another. It's kind of an interesting study to your point of like humans are all the same. And then we just seemingly arbitrarily pick which basket of things to care about <laughs> based on what basket of things that people around us care about yeah, yeah. Like, like the restaurant example but who makes the basket right, <laughs> right. yeah i don't think we even choose that but i wonder how it gets created uh, you know the restaurant examples yeah, were yeah. an int interesting one where it's like in the u.s i feel like it's very normal even if you don't like the food that much when the waiter or waitress comes around and asks like oh are you enjoying your meal and you're like oh it's good like it would be insane to react the way that the Chinese re were reacting in the, in the restaurant where they were basically shitting on the food, co to, like completely shitting on it and then eating all of it at the table. And basically, <laughs> it was very culturally acceptable to be mean about the food. But they might think it's like mean what we do where we say like, oh, it's good. And, then, yeah. and then as soon as the waiter walks away, be like, yeah, this actually isn't very good. Like they might be like, wow, that's really sneaky of you to do that. Uh, but then in other things, they're way more indirect, right? Like in the US, I think we could... Like if you just think about even some of the business scenarios they were talking about, it's very weird how they kept... Like the negotiation... Not weird. That's not the right word. It's very different how their negotiations were working versus the US style of negotiating. I think is just like totally different. The, the patience in the negotiations in this book, just like drawing it out to the last possible second. <laughs> yeah. 
every time, no matter what it was. It was always though. I think it was uh, in the in the chapter where uh, he's running for party secretary for his town. I, I forget the name of the town. I think it was like Sancha, if I recall correctly. And he like won't state whether he's going to run or not, even though he's like made up his mind to run. And that actually like doesn't sound that unique. But then the author kind of added a little asterisk where he was like, yeah, like it's very common in China to not state a preference, even if you have one, just until you see like which way the wind will blow. And then you kind of get involved and you're like way more careful about your allegiances, uh, which I thought was interesting. It's like, it's kind of the same here. Like I... But he called it out as something very different. And it does feel different because in the negotiations, at least, it appears that way as well. Like when they were negotiating pay, the factory. Right. Like till the last second, it was no one was making any commitments until it was like a game of chicken, basically. Like right. Very extreme. <laughs> N- negotiation culture in general, I feel like, is one of those like criteria that I feel like cultures can diverge on so much. Right. Where it's like it. I definitely got that theme from the book where basically everything's a negotiation, right? Even talking to the police about the fine that he has to pay for like going into a city without his reporter's visa. They're like, well, it says 500, but you know, we'll charge you 100, right? Like that kind of stuff is almost impossible to imagine, right? Coming from America where like almost nothing is a negotiation. I think we have much more high fidelity bureaucracy. Like we have, to your point of like Mm. the zooming in kind of thing in China, it's like we have, I think in the US, every level has a lot more fidelity than at least he was describing in the book. Like meaning, you know, you you don't get to negotiate with your local traffic cop. Like it's just built it. Like it would be insane to the cop too for you to, you know, he's like, here's your ticket. And you're like, Oh, just imagine. I love that. I love that idea, right? Like APD pulls me over for going 90 on the highway. And I'm just like, how about 50? (laughs) How about you come over and I just like feed you? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you come over? I'll make you a dinner. Like we can forget all about this. (laughs) Yeah. The tax authority thing where they literally had to treat the tax authorities to dinner. Yeah. In, uh, in factory towns. That was like an actual, yeah. Yep. I don't know if it's that our bureaucracy is higher fidelity or that we just care about different things. And in those domains, it's higher fidelity. And then in other domains, we just don't care. Like that, that feels yeah. more accurate to me. Yeah, because the he, he has this example early on where he talks about returning the rental car with a certain amount of gas. <laughs> oh, yeah, And he, he points this out where it's kind of arbitrary, the things that are doable and not doable. Like... It's fine to, uh, you know, return it with some dents and you can say like, oh, no, you have to return it with exactly three eighths gasoline (laughs) because that's what it left with. But for some reason, it would be impossible to say, no, you have to return it with a full tank. Right. (laughs) Like, and he kind of points out the silliness isn't the right word, but how we all take certain things as like, no, you know, it, it kind of has to be this way. This is just the way the world works here. But there is another option that is equally like arduous or challenging or whatnot that theoretically could work as well but for some reason like this is it and this one isn't so to your point of deal i feel like it's easy for us to look at some of this stuff and say like oh well it's it's overall higher fidelity or lower fidelity but it's really just like a completely different set of things right the i I think one one difference where it's not a 
everyone's the same, but in like applied to different things was the individual's level of recourse as shown in this book is like very, very low. And uh, I think the story that like stayed with me the most was when I kind of forgot some of the names. It's been a little bit, but the guy who has the disabled brother and is expecting like monthly uh, checks from the government to help with his care and the government doesn't send the checks. So he goes to the government office and actually drops off his brother there and just leaves him there and then comes back. Yeah. And it's like, but it worked pretty crazy. Well, it worked, but also just imagine in the U S the bureaucracy in the U S runs so deep that like, if you left someone there, they'd be like, there's nothing we can do, sir. Like this is managed by some central office far, far away. Like, you know, you're just like neglecting your brother, but over there, like that was an effective tactic, but there, he had no other means of recourse. It was very personal, actually, the way he was dealing with the local government. And not only that, it made the other people in his town respect him more. Including the party secretary. (laughs) (laughs) Like, wow, you had the balls to do that. (laughs) And then the other example was like the factory workers when their contracts were violated. So that was one area where it was like very clearly the individual kind of gets lost in the crowd. And I think that's like, that's a just a very stark cultural difference. Whereas over here, it's like those would be, you know, the press would be all over it in certain cases. Like, What did you think about the whole Mongol stuff? Like there were some interesting comments there that he was making, like how the Chinese have kind of like absorbed Genghis Khan into their mythology in a way, even though his like number one enemy, I guess, would have been China Um, or I guess the whatever. I forget the dynasty that was there at that time, but. Yeah, like the whole story around the Great Wall was really interesting mm-hmm. too. How I, I never knew any of that. Like I thought it was not just a. I, I thought it was like a one-time construction, like in response to a specific thing. Seems like it's been built over many centuries, and different parts built over different time periods. Yeah, different parts by different people. The the Mongol thing and like the I don't know what the right word. There must be some like academic like proper word for this, like absorbing another culture, but like in a way where like they kind of disappear within yours. Kissinger talks about this in On China regarding like part of the reason why like the Chinese like civilization feels so permanent is that even when other groups arrive, which I always like find like endearing that like every group along the border is considered a barbarian. They, even if they come in and they like wield some kind of power, like the Manchus did, uh, they eventually get absorbed as well. And like, the Chinese uh, civilization continues, even if it's under a different name, even if it's under a different dynasty, like whatever it may be. So the Mongol thing kind of fit that pattern in my mind. That's actually kind of an interesting way to think about it, right? Like it, it would almost be like conceiving of, you know, Italy's history as still like not distinct from Roman history. Right. It's like, no, it's always been the same. It's always right. been Italy, <laughs> right? Or, or like some some version of that. It it kind of does change how you think about it. Or even like this, this is a pretty huge structure of an example, but like, oh, America has always been around, <laughs> right? It's just, you know, for a while it was, you know, who we would now call the indigenous tribes. And then, you know, it was Spanish and French and whatever, right? But it was like, it was always America. Right, yeah, which it's is like treating that as the totally different way to think about the history of a place. Yeah. Well, one of the parts in Kissinger's on China that I liked is uh, Mao basically used this as a negotiating tactic 
So he would ally with the Soviets against the Americans and then ally with the Americans against the Soviets. Cause in both cases, like China was the third largest, third most powerful and both sides wanted China on their side. So he would basically play both sides, but China didn't have nuclear weapons. So in the negotiations, he would basically go and say like, if you want, like you can nuke the hell out of us. And he would like invite it, like almost like he was goading them on. And he was like, it doesn't matter if you kill like however many millions of us in the cities, there are so many of us we will go into the foothills. Like you will never get us. And then in 50 years, when your regimes have changed and when your systems have collapsed and we're still here, we will come back out of the mountains and like, we'll like, we'll always be here. Like he took it to the <laughs> most logical extreme. And Kissinger's basically saying, look, like, we didn't want to call the guy's bluff. Like we actually believed him um, <laughs> because China has been around for so long that there's no like start of China. China's just always been here since the start of history. So there's a sense that it will like always remain. Mm, that's fascinating. Pretty badass. Actually, along yeah. those lines, yeah. along those lines, something that again, re- kind of relating to the U S China parallel, there was the section where he's talking about one of China's strengths is, the ability to absorb outside cultures and like all these barbarian tribes and all these, uh, to your point about the different regimes, all being China, they all kind of, once they came into power, uh, like they adopted the previous regimes, like mythology and the previous regimes, uh, Mm -hmm. I guess, right to rule. And one of the things that he talks about for the Mongols is, um, and this is from the book, the horse nomads are the first people to whom this has no appeal at all. Waldron continued, and this baffles the Chinese because they've always banked on any outsider getting hooked on the culture. But the horse nomads don't do it. They just come in and they rape and they pillage and burn. It posed the same problem for the Chinese as Americans have with Al-Qaeda, with the people who just hate us. Americans often feel like they just need to, to know us better. Give them a good old American barbecue, show them what life is like here, and they're bound to like it. It's kind of a really interesting parallel. <laughs> yeah. Especially for the time that this book was written. You know, it's like that was such a prominent thing in American culture. It's just like, oh, they they don't know us well enough. Like that was they you know, we have to just go there and, you know, show them American democracy and they'll just adopt it because it's just better. It's very much like looking in the mirror, because then you're like the ways in which you see another very high conviction culture, like show itself and like uh, assert itself and the ways in which it's like admirable and off-putting and frustrating and cool it's probably exactly what we look like but because it's us we're just like yeah whatever like of course we're the best right um, yeah well we, we've talked about this before it's like a form of uh like naive exceptionalism right like uh, assuming that if somebody has different values than you then they must just be uneducated right it's like oh well if they if they value all these things then you know, uh, they must be dumb or they just don't like understand enough. And like, once we explain it, once we show it to them, right. Like then they'll realize that we're right. doesn't, doesn't often work like that. (laughs) Yeah. And especially I could see the stark difference between the Mongols and, you know, at least what I picture ancient Chinese culture to be like, you know, these clean regal, like courts and, you know, lots of jewels, just like a very luxurious lifestyle compared to, you know, horse nomads who are just like fighting all the time and like never taking a bath and like oh, just, you know, just the opposite. It's as polar opposite as you could probably get from ancient Chinese culture. And they were probably just like, oh, once they see what our life is like, they're just going to 
Like, why would they want to live like they live? But, but it didn't seem like that. Same thing happened with like the early American colonizers, right? They thought that if the indigenous people, you know, saw their civilized life, then they would want to like leave and switch to that. But the opposite would happen, right? Like there were so many would, cases of their that. people would get captured. Yeah. <laughs> yeah or they would run off to live with the like quote unquote savages. Right. And they were so confused. They were like, how could anybody want to do this? And it's like, well, <laughs> that life might be better. Another interesting thing that was like another random anecdote was all the World Bank stuff around uh, like the the NGO like uh, developing funds that they were trying to they were basically like helping China modernize itself. And one of the things that the author called out is like he met all these laborers who were part of this these modernization projects, and they were basically digging for like five instant noodle packets a day. Or something like three, maybe three. It was, it was, they weren't getting paid. They were getting paid in like instant noodle packets. Mm -hmm. And he contacted the World Bank and they were like, this isn't like, this isn't real. Like everybody in our projects gets paid. They get paid like a live, you know, living wage. And he was just like, well, that doesn't match with the experience that I saw where none of these people who are working on this project on the ground are getting paid. Like they're all just getting paid. So somebody is basically capturing the money in the middle. And it reminded me of there's a book I read called uh, recently called Cobalt Red, which is about cobalt mining in the Congo. Uh, the author was on Rogan, which I haven't listened to that episode, but his book was literally about this, where every single EV company and every single battery company will say, you know, our cobalt, our batteries come from ethical supply chains. Like we only buy from, like we verified there's no slave labor used in this, there's no child labor used in this. And he went to the Congo and almost like got captured and killed a couple times in the book, which he talks about. To, but there's so much different stuff happening on the ground. And he basically documents the ways that they turn a blind eye towards what's happening um, because there's like so many layers, right? It's like these essentially slave masters like drive these orphan children to like handpick cobalt out of these mines they sell it to like a layer in the middle that layer aggregates and sells to another layer. And then like the battery company buys from like a layer above that, which is officially sanctioned by the government, like a very legit looking company, but they can basically like have plausible deniability. Like, Oh, we don't, you know, we just bought from this company, but it's, if you go all the way down the supply chain, I, I have a feeling something similar was happening here with the world bank NGO thing where probably the world bank hired some legitimate company and that company hired another company and hired another company. And it just was, at the end of the day, the actual people doing the work were doing the work for instant noodle packets and not actually getting paid. The The videos that he got of the cobalt mines are crazy. Yeah. If anyone hasn't seen those. The, the interview is worth listening to, too. I, I haven't read the book, but I listened to a lot of the interview. It gets a little repetitive, but the first like 30, 40 minutes are insane. Yeah. And in the book, he talks about about actually he was only able to keep those videos because a lot of the soldiers who would like interrogate him didn't know how the phone worked. Like he made like another folder that was basically empty or that just had like pictures of his family. And when they'd ask to like go through his phone, he, that folder would show up and he had like a hidden folder with all the actual, you know, I feel like anybody with a rudimentary knowledge of how a smartphone works would have looked for that if you were interrogating somebody. But they didn't know. And so he was able to get out of the country with all these videos. Because, you know, from a from a government standpoint, Congo, like the actual government and the leaders make a lot of money off of the cobalt. So they have a very strong interest in keeping it going. So it's a very scary pairing of incentives because you can imagine 
as states become more technologically adept, then they continue to have the incentive to like mistreat people and extract money from them while also getting better at like discarding the evidence. And then it reduces interest from the outside because then you like don't know where to go and where to look. Yeah. No, for sure. It's like, I mean, all the stuff in China around some of the factory conditions that's come out. It, I mean, China is probably better than the Congo is at controlling that information, but at least the information still got out. I guess what you're saying is as time goes on, they might get better or all nations might get more technologically adept at stopping that kind yeah. of evidence from coming out. I mean, to your point of every place is the same, I think, unfortunately, it's like, yeah, we've outsourced a lot of labor from the US to these other countries. And then we like feel good about it. Like, oh, the pollution isn't here. But some of the things that he was even talking about on the environmental side were were really interesting. <laughs> like there was like one green zone at, near the end of the book that he was, do you remember this? Like he's talking about near the yeah. end. Of, oh, so some kind of green zone, but the initial like phase of the green zone was bring in a lot of like polluting industries. Oh yeah. To yeah, the yeah, green yeah, zone. yeah. With the uh, pleather industry coming yes. in. Yeah. yeah. The Congo red guy author talks about this too, where it's like, there's what, there are more slaves today than there have ever been in history, but they're not in the U S and so right. we don't feel bad about it. Right. But they're all just like in the Congo making our EVs for us instead. So it's like, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And same thing with the pollution stuff too. Yeah. Right. It's not even like just, just EVs. Sort of all of it. It's not even just EVs yeah. though. Like his point was it's in laptops and in phones. Well, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 in, it's in every lithium ion battery. Yeah, exactly. Right? So anything that uses a rechargeable battery is like partially built by slave labor, I think. Yeah. Is his yep. claim. But yeah, it's out of sight, out of mind. We just don't think about it on a day-to-day basis, which is, I mean, to be fair to us, I guess, what else are you going to do? Like, you can't really, like, there's... Well, okay. So here, I, I was just thinking, this is why I had like a, a thinking face on. Is it... I'm actually, this is kind of a tough one. Is it right or wrong to invade a country that's aggressively using slave labor to harness its natural resources? Hmm. All right. Like it, because he, I, and you know, maybe we should just do Congo red. Cause I feel like we have a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. but he, one of the things he talks about is that there's no electricity yeah. in the parts of the Congo that like have the cobalt. So they can't even like put in machinery to do it if they wanted to in those parts. Right. So like, theoretically a country could like just take over and then put in electricity and like you know mine it properly and like save that population from slave labor or like yeah it's but a, it, it still it actually, feels wrong it also it's a hard balance because it's it's like it's effectively nation building and every time yeah. we nation built we've been like well we're going to nation build and we're going to get a democracy on the other side and in this case you'd almost have to go and say you're actually not going to get a democracy on this other side because those things have to emerge naturally. This is like a human rights invasion and we're going to put in like a benevolent dictator. Like it's a very tough sell is sort of what I'm getting. Actually, Adil, to your point, to your point, like that actually came, I don't know if this came up in the interview, uh, but in the book, he talks about how the conditions got so bad and, um, and there used to actually be some Western companies doing the actual mining and they used mm-hmm. a lot more machinery. And even the local people that he's talking to said, oh, the hours used to be so much better. They used to actually pay us like a good amount of money. There were incentives. But then they had a nationalist leader, I forget his name, who came in, like who was, I guess, took power. I forget if it was elected or took power by force. 
and he expelled all the Western mining companies. But obviously, he you know, well, one, I think the main reason was he wanted to capture more of the benefits for the government itself. And you talked a big game of like, oh, we're going to take the money that all these companies are making off of us and we're going to reinvest it into the Congo. But really, I think he was just filling his own coffers with it. And 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 essentially now the people like he was extracting his people were I'm not saying the Western mining companies were yeah. doing a great job. They were probably doing still a horrific job, but it was a level that was to the people living there now was like a fond memory of when the the like there was some French mining company and then I think an American mining company and they were like remembering how good how good things were when they were there because they were actually machines and stuff. And now they do it all by hand. This is very like dictator's handbook, uh, like curse of natural resources. Totally, literally. I don't remember. I don't remember what they actually describe in that book as like how you kind of break out of this cycle. I I don't think they did. I think it was sort of like this is just how the world works, right? Yeah, that's sort of why I'm wondering, like, you know, if if you had, you know, if you had NATO or something, be like, you know, if if there is documented evidence that you're using like slave labor to harness your natural resources, like we will invade and take over and end it. Right. Like, I, I don't know. I'm like, I'm, I'm literally struggling with this. It's yeah. hard. To you know, say, it's funny. Like, you know, that meme of like, I forget what it, like what that one would be called, but the one where like the little stuffed animal thing or puppet is doing like the side eye. When you say something, I was like, I was like, NATO we will invade you if you're using slave labor in your country. And it was like the U S like looking to the side. <laughs> Cause sometimes like, I do think like the prison stuff, like where you use prisoners for labor and there's like, so well, yeah, that, that would be the, the question US. is like, like, where do you, where do you draw that line? Yeah. Right. Right. Like there's, there's a ton of super obvious ones. Of course. Right? The Congo thing is like a huge, ex- easy example. But yeah, exactly. And then you have this question of, yeah, like prison labor and right, like what wage level, right? Like, uh, yeah, there's uh, just like a lot. Yeah, I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll do this book and we'll, we'll put it on the, the potential list. Yeah. Yeah, every option's bad because nation building is a whole other thing. And then like if you don't nation build, it's effectively a colony. Well, yeah, I mean, just because it hasn't worked before a deal doesn't mean <laughs> it won't work this time. The last time it worked was the Marshall Plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, or, or we just say, you know what, you're it's it's not nation building. Like you will get, we'll we'll raffle you off to one of the big countries, <laughs> and there will just be a little like you know French satellite or something. It's like well, that, that's what I was saying. Yeah. Is the other alternative is like then you just yeah. create a colony and. Yeah, I mean, I think colonization is bad. Of how we ended up here. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, let's do this book. I think this is we should. Do yeah, it maybe we, we should, should. Yeah, yeah. Let's put it on the list. Yeah. We're gonna solve all the world's problems one podcast episode at a time. <laughs> yeah, I think Adil, one point that you had brought up a few minutes ago about what Mao said about like we'll always be in the mountains or whatever. I think some of that played out when Japan invaded. Because like Japan killed a lot of Chinese people and took over a decent chunk of the country when in World War Two, World War Two, World okay. War Two, yeah. yeah. But they, I mean, they didn't miss a beat after. And in some yeah, ways, you could argue it actually strengthened Mao and kind of what led to the CCP. Mao's comments definitely have historical precedent. Yeah, which is why, which is why Kissinger and the Soviets believed him. I was trying to find, I was just like thumbing through the book earlier, trying to find like the relevant quote. 
I'll see if I can find it before we're done recording. But what else from this book? I mean, this is probably too late in the episode to even bring like mention this considering it's in the title, but all the driving stuff was so interesting. <laughs> it's such a neat way to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like if you if you describe this book as like a journalist drives a rental car around China and talks about what happens. I'd be like, that sounds like an incredibly boring book, (laughs) but it's a really good context for the story. Like it's a cool wrapper for everything that happens. Yeah, exactly. And, but even just like the actual minutia of driving, like the driving logistics in China, like it's not weird for somebody to back up and on the middle of the highway or, you know oh yeah, the, yeah and also some of the city planning stuff like there's one section where he's saying the left turn lane was all the way on the right in the right <laughs> lane <laughs> across five lanes of traffic yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine if you like bump into somebody right like that's totally normal yeah. but if you turn your headlights on in the rain <laughs> yeah. people will get pissed at you <laughs> oh. Oh, and how like the honking is a language, right? Like, is it like a long honk or just like a quick tap? I remember uh, when we were in Brazil, I was was in Brazil with my family and there was another version of the like bumping is fine there, which was, and this was in Rio. So I don't know if it's true, like everywhere, but in Rio, it was so congested and there was so little parking that you would park your car in neutral. Hmm. And then people would just get out and push the cars back and forth to create parking spots as they needed them. (laughs) And it was just like totally normal to see people like pull up, stop, get out of the car, push a couple cars back and forth to like make space for them and then park their car. And you just have like little bumps happening all the time. But that was just like how you parked in Rio, which seemed insane. But then you think about it more and you're like, Wait, that's actually kind of sick because yeah. you've definitely had this experience of trying to parallel park and there's like one asshole who's somehow taking up like three spots <laughs> yeah. by being in the worst <laughs> position possible. <laughs> it's yeah, it, it's like the car is a tool. Like a tool yeah. damaged yeah. while it's being used for its express purpose. That's actually a really good point. Like in America, cars are so much of like identity. Yeah, that's that so true. The idea of damaging them seems painful. Just like the, right? the average new car now is Somewhere in like the mid $40,000, the average yeah. new car sale. I mean, that's crazy. Of course, you don't want to get that thing bumped. That's insane. Like we used to have cars that I remember when we first moved to the US, like not when we first moved to the US, when we first moved to California in like 2001, we bought two cars and one of them was a Toyota Echo and it was like $9,000. And there's just nothing in that price category anymore. No. I mean, I, I, if you look at the number of people who have like over $1,000 a month car payments. It's insane. Really? And it's it's a lot of people who are buying souped up trucks. Because like the F-150 mm-hmm. is the best selling car in America. It's super expensive, and right? Like relative to... Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, a fully loaded F-150 is what, like 80 or 90? Jeez. It's a lot. That's a lot. But I think even the, the base is maybe 35. It's not a cheap car. Wow. But you've got a lot of people who are spending like... 10, 15, 20% of their income on their car payments. Wow. Yeah. Uh, just because it's like, it's such a big <clears throat> part of your, yeah, like identity, yeah. I guess. Yeah. It's tangentially related to this. Another thing that stood out to me in the book is when they talked about financing. It's like cities where have their like hands tied when it comes to financing. So they can't like levy too much by taxes and they have to get all these like creative means by which they raise money. And then 
for individuals was like the high savings rate is largely a function of the fact that it's very hard to take out debt. And like now it's easier to take out debt, but people don't really want to take out debt because they've just become accustomed to not taking out debt. Uh, it's like personal loans. I, I think there's like no concept of a credit card is something I caught in the book if I if I didn't misunderstand. But yeah, there's a, I'll, uh, I'll read a quick paragraph. Chinese cities have to raise much of their own funds, but by law, they can't issue municipal bonds like American cities. They also can't charge significant property taxes because land is nationalized. The tax base is weak for a fledgling region. The city can acquire land at will, and they pay set prices that have been established by the government. After the sale is made and farmers have moved off of the rural land, the city can build basic infrastructure, reclassify the region as urban, and urban land use rights can be auctioned off at market rates. So the city actually ends up having to like kind of fuck over their farmers in order to reclassify the land, sell it, and then use that to reinvest in infrastructure projects. And I also thought it was interesting that farmers can't sell their own land. Yeah. Right? Like that was another piece that was interesting where... um, And I think by the end, they were talking about there were potentially ways that they were working on that you could lease the land that that you had the rights to, to other people. Because they, I think, I, I don't know, I feel like to what, you're, what you just said, like farmers are getting too fucked over. Um, yeah, wh- which book was it that we did that talked about how property and land rights are like one of the most important forms of like... Oh, yeah. It, it, it was talking about it as a democratizing force. It's like the, the individual's right to their land is one of the like clearest indicators of how much political and economic autonomy people have in a country. I, I can't remember. I forget which, which book, book it was, was but I remember that as well. Yeah. We should, I don't know the details well enough to recount them, <clears throat> but there have been like pretty serious real estate reforms in China to this end. And cool. it's like, it, it's kind of allows the government to thread to, uh, yeah, thread the needle on like, it's still owned by us, but like you kind of own it and you can like sell it at the market rate. I'll find the link, but it's cool to see how they've like made that struck that balance. Uh, Cause it, 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 to your point now, it's like, it's necessary, but they are doing it in like this uniquely Chinese way. Just like kind of everything mm. that the CCP does. And guys, I, I fact checked myself quickly to make sure I was right on the F-150 stat. <clears throat> Not only is the F-150 or like the F series, the best selling car in America. Number two is the Chevy Silverado, another full size truck and number three is the ram pickup wow so the top three best-selling cars are all full-size trucks <laughs> like and to give you a sense of the scope so the f-series 653,000 units in 2022 wow and the first sedan on the list is the camry at number five which sold 300,000 units <laughs> wow nothing tells so, you you live in a bubble more than stats like that yeah <laughs> Twice as many F-Series as Camrys. Okay, and then the GMC Sierra is number seven. And then Tacoma, which is a half-size truck, or mid-size, is number nine. So five of the top ten are trucks, and four of those are full-size. That's wild. If you do quick back of the napkin, like, in terms of volume of units, like, what's the distribution look like? So, like, number one is double number five, based on what you said for the F-150 and the Camry. Number 10 is 220,000. So that's a third of number one. Okay. Yeah. 
but like if we combine one, two, and three, it's six fifty, five hundred, and four fifty. So five, one point five, one point six, six. Yeah, one point six million. Wow, full size trucks per year. <laughs> That's a lot of trucks. <laughs> wow, and those things last a long time. Actually, like that, you'll see old beaten up F one fifties on the road. So it's like they're selling six hundred of six hundred thousand of them a year. Like, wow. Well, I bet a lot of people are leasing them for two years. They can keep upgrading them. Hmm. Oh, okay. I guess it depends you know. how you count the 600K. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, actually, that's a good point. But I more mean that people aren't necessarily driving them for 10 years. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Or maybe somebody's driving them for 10 years. Like after the two Somebody years, is, someone's yeah, buying a used yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys want to keep going? I got to drop off in a minute. I think I got to drop off too. Okay. Unfortunately, we can wrap up here. Yeah. This was a good one. I would strongly recommend this book to everyone. Yeah. It's just fun. It's not dense. I really enjoyed this book or enjoyed what I got through of this book. I only read the first third. This is my my, my admission. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. It's okay. I feel like it was enjoyable enough that you pulled it off. Yeah. 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 I think I will finish it. I I was really enjoying reading it. Yeah. It's just fun. It's a good, I feel like it'd be a good vacation read for somebody if they were like, oh, I want a book that's not super heavy but still interesting and easy to get through like this is good road trip good, read good road trip read as long as you're not the one driving but yeah. while you're while you're camping <laughs> in your audiobook to uh avoid the police finding you at a hotel <laughs> i think i, I would also oh, yeah, that was another it. thing we didn't even talk about that i would also recommend reading it like nowadays because so much of like mass media hysteria over china is overly negative and it's like a pretty amazing empathy building tool yes for like this is what like yeah, real totally. life looks like in china and uh yeah it, there's some really great stories well, all right on that note see you guys next time we'll see you next, see time. next time oh send this to a friend <laughs> <laughs>